BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. It's Monday, March 20th, 2017, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Before we get further into this episode, I want to let our listeners know about my new podcast called Cadence, What Music Tells Us About the Mind. I'm super excited about this project, and we already have three episodes available for you to listen to on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. Again, it's called Cadence. Flint, Michigan used to stand for the height of U.S. manufacturing, a booming car industry that fueled middle-class factory jobs across its population. It was a symbol of American pride. And that story crumbled in the height of the recession with the downfall of the automotive industry and the automotive bailouts. That collapse wreaked havoc across a number of industries, including all of the companies that were supplying parts into those automotive companies. And that story of Flint turned into one of U.S. manufacturing decline. But now when I say Flint, Michigan, you think of something else, don't you? Yeah, I think about people who live and have to pay for water that they can't drink. That's right. We think of orange water, we think of poisoned water, and we think the failure of U.S. infrastructure. And in a lot of ways, we think of the failure of environmental justice, the failure of our ability to help people, especially those who don't have the means to help themselves. It's an incredibly sad tale, and one that feels so recent, but started almost three years ago. Wow, has it been that long? Back in April 2014, the city, in a move to save a large amount of money based on the fact of declining tax revenue, switched to a new water supply. When it switched to that new water supply, it didn't include corrosion inhibitors in that, in that water, and in a cascade of events, the water supply became contaminated with lead and bacteria. And in fact, 10 people died from that bacterial contamination. In the spring of 2015, a Flint resident, Leanne Walters, made a fateful phone call to Dr. Mark Edwards at Virginia Tech. And that's where our science story really begins this week, with one of Mark's students, Sid Roy. He is a PhD student and a graduate researcher in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering at Virginia Tech's 
He works with Mark Edwards researching corrosion and plumbing and applied his work in corrosion to the Flint water crisis as one of the founding members of the Virginia Tech Flint Water Study. And all of their information is at flintwaterstudy.org. What really strikes me about this, and this is a fascinating interview as an update to what has happened in Flint since then, I want you to remember the name Leanne Walters. She is the hero of this. Oftentimes, those Virginia Tech scientists are painted as the heroes. There's no question in my mind who the hero of this story is. And it's the woman who had every reason not to trust science that made a leap to try to trust a scientist somewhere else. So with that, we're going to take a short break and be back with my interview with Sid Roy. This episode is sponsored by Sunbasket. There's always an excuse to not eat healthily. You don't have a personal nutritionist or you don't have access to the right ingredients. You're too tired to plan and shop and cook. Well, your body doesn't understand excuses. That's why Sunbasket got rid of them. Sunbasket makes it easy to cook delicious, seasonal, nutritious meals in your own kitchen. Get dinner on the table in 30 minutes and it's healthy cooking made easy. I have to say one of the things I like best about Sunbasket is not just the fact that they make really great recipes, they are delicious, but also that their packaging seems to be very environmentally friendly, especially compared with their competitors. Each Sunbasket meal comes with pre-measured fresh ingredients and easy to follow directions. And they are really good. What's more encouraging than that? Eating right starts now with Sunbasket. Go to sunbasket.com slash minds today and get your first three meals free. That's sunbasket.com slash minds to get three healthy, easy to prepare meals free. sunbasket.com slash minds. Sid Roy, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Sure, thanks for having me. So tell us when you first heard about the trouble in Flint, beginning with Leanne Walters. Right. So I'm a PhD student at Virginia Tech, and our lab does a lot of work, you know, looking at water issues across the country. And uh, it was over pizza about, you know, a year and a half ago where our group was, you know, celebrating birthdays. And after that, my advisor, Dr. Mark Edwards, you know, told the team that there is trouble brewing in Flint and it potentially could be affecting the entire city in that they have, uh, they potentially have uh, lead issues in their water, along with a whole host of other uh, aesthetic issues. Uh, And he told the story of uh, Leanne Walters, this this Flint mother, and the fact that one of her kids had been lead poisoned uh, from her tap water. Um, And, you know, when they were trying to figure out what went wrong, the city actually came and tested her tap and found high lead, but they blamed it on her plumbing. And she was angry because her entire plumbing is plastic. So a citizen simply concerned about the health of her kids, started looking for answers online and found an EPA scientist, uh, Miguel Del Toro, and then found Mark Edwards, my advisor, two of the most, you know, uh, two of the leading experts of water quality and lead in this country. And when her testing with us showed high levels of lead in her home. To give you some context, you know, there is no safe level of lead that you can be exposed to. It's zero parts per billion. Uh, Leanne samples, the average of those samples was 2,000 parts per billion. EPA classifies 5,000 as hazardous waste, and the highest sample from her house was 13,000. So, you know, you have uh, water that's 
two and a half times hazardous waste levels coming out of someone's tap. And we are listening to this story at this pizza party and thinking, oh my gosh, this really looks like something we've studied before. So the DC led crisis, and I can talk about that later, but uh, he told us that he was putting a team together to help because the state and the city were insisting everything was fine and asked for volunteers. And the fact that all of us had already had the pizza, which meant we were really happy and satisfied and we were, you would say yes to anything. Uh, we did. We said, of course, you know, this is this is what we came to this field for. Uh, we would absolutely do everything in our power. That's how I got involved. Was there any question when the offer was made to volunteer about you getting involved? Because that line to cross going from being, you know, an academic in the lab to actually going out to the community is is non-trivial to cr- cross for many folks. Mm-hmm. To be honest, I don't think I knew at the time what I was signing up for. Um, but a core part of you know our research group and the the ethics we carry is that we serve the public. It has been an integral part of our the, the kind of work we do in water systems across the country. So, uh, we regularly you know collaborate with citizens and citizen groups uh, across America. So uh, you know we realize the immense power and potential these collaborations have, and the fact that you are crossing a line. Uh, I think it's less of crossing, uh, you know, an imaginary line and more of responding to a call for help uh, in an area of our expertise. So I I don't see how that, you know, muddles waters because uh, a core principle of our field uh, is, you know, the first canon, if you will, of civil engineering states clearly that we shall hold paramount the health, welfare, and safety of the public. And we hold that uh, canon really dear to our hearts in everything we do. So no, it it really wasn't, uh, you know, something that I had to think about twice before, you know, signing up. What was it like when you actually got to Flint? Because the story goes is that you literally hopped into a minivan and (laughs) drove out to Flint together uh, and got there and started talking to people. Uh, Yes. So uh, based on our interactions with Leanne and this amazing citizen group that had already formed over the past few months, uh, you know, who were protesting and trying to bring attention to this crisis, we decided that one of the first things we would do is in this collaboration is send them 300 lead kits. uh, So they would be, uh, they would, make sure that people across the city got these kits and, you know, uh, sample the tap water and send them back to us. So while they kind of handled that aspect, we wanted to look at lead and a lot of other issues uh, that we suspected were a problem in Flint. So not just lead, you had issues with iron. That's why the water was turning orange and brown. The iron pipes were corroding. There were issues with high bacteria and potentially Legionella, which is, uh, you know, a, a bacteria that can kill you, for example, when you're taking a shower. So we had all these scientific questions, but, you know, really deeply embedded in public health uh, uh, aspects of, and the fact that this could be harming uh, uh, people as we sat there. So while the citizens were out and you know, doing doing this, uh, you know, amazing citizen science effort, collecting samples, we drove up to Flint to to do a lot of testing on our own to kind of, you know, look at the, the, these other issues in addition to Flint. And uh, yes, we did turn Dr. Edwards's wife's uh, minivan into a you know, mini laboratory. I think there are acid stains in there that she is not happy about. But uh, yeah, uh, 
we literally got into a van and went to Flint. What happened when you got there? Because I imagine that while there's this citizen group that really is motivated and, you know, and brought you in, you probably had to do some convincing to get other residents not on board with that to trust you. I think, uh, you know, you bring up trust and uh, trust building is absolutely critical in any collaboration. In our case, uh, because we had been talking to Leanne and some of, you know, Melissa and all these other pastors uh, that are part of this amazing team for a, for a few weeks before we went in, we kind of, you know, were at a position where uh our word could be, you know, trusted uh, partly because they had been screaming to the state, to the city for months for help, showing their bringing their brown water to these city council meetings, and not being heard and not being listened to. Uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, maybe we were the only ones who were the ones listening. I, I hate to, you know, say that, but. Uh, a population that is looking for answers uh, and feeling completely ignored uh, when they see a scientist uh, and and there and has been a bunch of grad students uh, mostly interested in listening to what they have to say, actually when going to Flint and sitting with them at a dinner table, listening to their stories, their struggles and their and the issues they're facing with an open mind, with an open scientific mind, uh, that kind of, you know, I, I believe uh, that honesty, that openness was critical in, in them starting to trust us. And it was, we took that decision, you know, we took our time in that we were invited to the table. We did not go in announced and just, you know, we want to help. No, it was it was mutual. It was the fact that we had this expertise and they had a need and how could we help each other. Um, and so uh, sitting at the, at, so the first trip, uh, I wasn't on the first trip. Uh, four of my very close friends were and Mark was there. And uh, we we did these interviews, these ethnographic interviews where we are, we are talking to people and, you know, asking them these open-ended questions about their families and the city and the water. So that kind of, that actually helped us frame our research questions better. So the fact that we were opening to listening to anything that to say, anything that to share, uh, played a big role in, in, in them trusting us. In terms of the city council meetings and the the state's interactions with you. Take us inside what it was like, because I imagine you weren't entirely welcomed by the government agencies that were that were conducting the tests up until that point. That's an understatement. <laughs> um, I th- so here's what happened. You know, um, when we went in, we we reached out to this uh, the state, the Department of Environmental Quality. It's amazing to talk about these agencies, you know, in a before and after fashion, because before we were like fighting them, you know, exposing wrongdoing, and now they're over the past year, they are the ones leading, you know, the the cure, the the healing in Flint. So uh, I have these mixed emotions, but I'll try and go through it. So early on, when we reached we reached out and told them that. We are looking and we are coming into town and this is, you know, something that citizens feel strongly about. So we will be studying this this water issue. Uh, we made that very clear. And um, when the results started coming in we and we were putting them on, on our website uh, and calling residents and, and telling them about, you know, uh, the issues, um, we got pushback, uh, you know, uh, the communications director of, of Michigan DEQ told reporters that 
we, 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 this group of scientists, we are lead magicians <laughs> in that we pull, uh, you know, this rabbit out of the hat wherever we go because that's our expertise. We somehow managed to do it. And so we were accused of fanning political flames irresponsibly. Um, and, you know, no questions about the science or about our testing versus their testing, about the actual analysis of the samples, about uh, why this could be a citywide problem. No scientific questions. It was this, this, this. I mean, a strange uh, attack. Uh, and I personally, and I don't think others too, we, we were not prepared for for this retaliation. I, I somehow managed. I think I imagined, oh, there has been some mistake. Someone will figure out there's a problem. Look, we brought the science, showed you the water is c contaminated. Now these people will do their jobs. And instead, you're, you're getting this barrage of, oh, the residents are adding lead to their water or this group you know, does this all the time. And even when uh, Mona, the local Flint pediatrician, came out with her results about childhood lead poisoning, oh, she's an unfortunate researcher. This this, this arrogance, this, this callous disregard for public health and you know this discounting of all these outside expertise and you know good intentions was was very shocking uh, uh, to me, and it it played out in a lot of the public meetings that you know people went to and uh, the one that I went to, and I think I, uh, I'll talk about that if that's okay. Yeah, please. The second trip that we made to Flint was to hold our own press conference because it seemed like the state was insisting everything was fine. Yeah, Virginia Tech's results, we are, we are kind of amazed at how they got there, but we don't know. So we felt that we had to go there, stand with the residents in their fight, uh, offer our science and as evidence to uh, essentially, you know, release our own public health advisory, you know, tell people, uh, use the power of the media, the local media especially, to communicate the fact that there are serious issues with, with lead poisoning because Flint is a very old town. Most of the infrastructure was built before the 1980s, which means uh, more than half of the homes in Flint probably have a lead pipe. So if when they switched their water source to the local Flint River and did not treat the water properly using federally required corrosion control law, uh, that meant all these homes with all these pipes and all these leaded plumbing inside these homes were potentially leaching out lead and causing an issue. And we saw, we were seeing that in our citywide testing. So we had a moral obligation to get the science out and, you know, get the message out. So I'm, we reached Flint, we have everything planned out. The residents did an amazing job. It was, it was their fight. So we were just helping out. The day before our actual thing, the city called this emergency water meeting. And uh, I was amazed at that, you know, why that was happening. I suspected it was because, you know, it was made public that we were coming. The first trip was clandestine. No one knew that we were coming to town. The second trip was more public. And at the city council meeting, uh, it's open to the public, the mayor and the people from the Department of Public Works, you know, the people who run the water plant, they come in, give a presentation. It's very scientific sounding and has numbers in it. And, you know, they basically say everything is fine. And, you know, I'm sitting there, uh, you know, shaking my head. But after that, you know, this this fight breaks off between the city council folks and the people because the people want to, you know, talk about these results, you know, and what they mean. And uh, the fact that somebody in their family was sick, for example, and this one woman who would, you know, get up every time, this very old woman, uh, she was given two minutes, but, you know, uh, she kept on, you know, pushing her point and she was asked to repeatedly sit down but she wouldn't because you know she was talking about her water and it was very important to her and 
the, and when she was trying to do it, the head city councilman actually had her arrested. Ma'am, I'm going to ask you one last time to stop. If you don't, then I'm going to have you arrested. That's, that's, that's Don't do it, man. She was arrested for talking about her tap water, and I I was there filming it. So I put it on the on on our website saying this is the most surreal experience ever. I mean, you have a population with obvious water issues, with a population that is embedded in, in poverty and other social issues, crime, etc. And now they're facing a water crisis. They need help. They need support. They need someone acknowledging this. But instead, I mean, one of them was arrested uh, at this very public meeting and i look i went back i looked at the tapes and this is this had happened before uh people you know melissa is one of the activists on 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 the ground she told me yeah this is this is uh, not that uncommon uh let's go get something to eat are you are you hungry and and i had my jaw to the floor i was really in shock but this wow. kind of uh you know bizarre uh you know experiences kind of made me think this is one of America's most troubled cities and, you know, and the system that is put that has been put in place at the local state and federal levels somehow seems to be failing an entire population and and that's not right so they're literally and figuratively being told just to sit down and be quiet while there are these obvious problems that's incredible I want to delve into this the science a little bit because I think we've all heard about the the lead issue, but not necessarily the complexities behind it. And why switching the water supply led to the lead leaching and but a host of other issues. And one of the more interesting notes I saw was that one of the primary problems here is not only the contamination of lead and then potentially bacteria and other issues, uh, there's an economic problem too. The water there is incredibly expensive. Mm -hmm. So you're right. The reason that is often cited uh, as to why they made the switch uh, goes like this. For about 50 years, uh, half a century, Flint had been buying water from Detroit. Uh, Detroit gets it, its water from one of the Great Lakes, Lake, Hur Lake Huron. It's treated, it's very non-corrosive, it's very pure, pristine. It's treated properly, and according to federal law, you do what's called corrosion control, in that you either add a chemical or adjust the water chemistry to make sure that older homes or you know buildings, uh, cities, essentially, which have which have lead pipes or lead plumbing, do not you know leach as less lead as possible. Uh, every ma major U.S. city in this in this country has a ton of lead pipes. I think Chicago has the highest, over four hundred thousand pipes. Uh, between the eighteen fifties to until even 1980, it was legal to install lead pipes, despite you know people knowing about uh, the health issues. Partly because of the lead lobby, that's the history. But we ended up with about anywhere from six to ten million lead pipes across the country. So we are talking Philadelphia, we are talking Pittsburgh, D.C., New York, Detroit, Flint, New Orleans. Uh, so um, you know, lead is pervasive in our water systems, in our water supply. And so uh, we do everything in our, in our power to kind of minimize that exposure. But uh, since you have lead in your system, you know, it's it, you cannot 
make it go away 100%. Because if you have a lead pipe, you're essentially drinking out of a, a lead straw, for example. That's the analogy we use. So the, they switched because Flint had been paying very high water rates. I mean, I, I think the average is... Uh, was about $150 a month for a population, 40% of which is below the, the poverty line. And to give you some context, that uh, that is higher than the water bills that that you find in Las in Las Vegas. So, you know, a population that can I mean cannot afford this is is being forced to pay so much money. So they made this. Uh, the idea was we'll have a new pipeline coming from Lake Huron. And while we do that, because Detroit found out there's going to be a new pipeline, they said you have to find an alternative source because we are not, you know, giving you the water anymore. You have you have one ear. So uh, Flint, because it was bankrupt, again, this is very, you know, the societal, the scientific, the economic. Because Flint was, uh, you know, bankrupt, it was under what's called an emergency manager, uh, where one man essentially has the power. He's employed. He's put in placed by the state, and he's put in specifically to cut costs and figure out uh, where you can, you know, you can save money. I think from a, from it was, it's more economic than anything else. So the decision to make the switch to the river was primarily economic to, you know, bring down the water bills. But when the switch was being made, uh, you know, there was this local plant in Flint that was going to come into operation. It had been in place for about 50 years, but had not been upgraded, was barely used. It was not ready. Uh, but when, when they made the switch, here's what happened. The Flint uh, River is very high in salt, uh, chlorides. So in, in colder cities, especially in the U.S., we add salt on the roads to kind of melt the snow in the winter. And where do you think that salt ends up? It goes into our freshwater sources. So the Flint River had high levels of salt, which is very, that's very aggressive to, you know, lead pipes and iron pipes, etc. And um, they did not, when they switched, they did not do corrosion control. This adding of this extra chemical and what that chemical does is it, re it binds with the lead pipes uh, and forms a protective coating inside the pipe so that the lead stays on the pipe and out of the water. So the idea is you have a band-aid that's forming inside and that kind of helps keep the lead out. It's not ideal, but at least it's something. It's an important band-aid. It, if you don't, I mean, once you lose it, like, you know, they, they made the switch, uh, the old water had corrosion control, the new one did not. And you immediately saw, you know, lead pieces chipping off from these pipes, literally pieces falling off. So it's, it's, it's crucial. We, we have to have it in place until we can, you know, find the money and the resources to replace all the lead pipes. So that kind of set into motion a chain reaction of lots of things. The this, this switch, uh, you know, first off, there is no corrosion control, which means you have lead leaching, so number one. Number two, uh, this, this water is also aggressive to the iron pipes, the, the major, the bigger pipes, the, the, the big network of pipes that carry water across the city. So it's, it's harming those pipes. So now you've, you see water main breaks occurring across the town. So uh, I have some statistics. The average age of pipes in Flint is 83 years. And you saw uh, there was a, a doubling in the number of main breaks. Literally, you know, streets would be underwater because the pipes started bursting out because these iron pipes were, you know, being corroded so rapidly. And this, this iron was in the was orange and brown, so that hence the color. So that's that's iron corrosion. So that's you're harming the water infrastructure, a very old, outdated infrastructure. Uh, so that's a, an economic cost. Uh, uh, for furthermore, 
because of all these corrosion reactions, we typically add chlorine in the water to kill bacteria, and it's it's an important you know protection. But because of all these reactions, chlorine was being used up. So there was no chlorine that was reaching people's taps, which meant there was that that protection of killing bacteria was missing by the time it got to people's homes. And so you actually saw an increase in boil water advisories because uh, people were, I mean, they found high bacteria a number of times, uh, you know, in the water. So lead poisoning, uh, you have uh, like water infrastructure that's, that's being, that's being, you know, uh, damaged. You have uh, no protection against bacteria. And then later on, we found that Legionella came into picture. Now, Legionella is a bacteria that, that's naturally occurring, but can grow and multiply inside building plumbing. So because there was no chlorine to kind of kill it, and because it kind of feeds on iron, because iron acts as a nutrient, you had legionnaires, you, you had Legionella bacteria growing in these pipes. And we found later on that about 12 people died by contracting this disease. Uh, in 2014 and 15, uh, very much, uh, very likely because of exposure to the water. So, <laughs> yes, it's it's yeah, it's this incredible cascade of effects, and also at the same time, the population in Flint has shrunk by an exceptional amount. Is the water flow with less people coming into town also affecting the science here? Absolutely. So Flint's water infrastructure was built, you know, at the height of uh, the automobile industry, and it was built for at least, I think, 200,000, 250,000 people. And now you have less than 100,000 living there. So what that means, you, you have an oversized infrastructure barely maintained, and it's already old. Uh, some parts, uh, there are parts where water just sits there and causes corrosion, there's nothing happening. And then you force open this valve of very corrosive water to even further damage the entire system. So, indeed, it was. Uh, I think uh, it was a, a system that was already on life support, and you kind of pulled the plug on it with by switching on corrosive water into the system. So that gives us the picture of how incredibly complicated it is. There's still a lot to do. I mean, there's still all of these social media messages about from Flint residents saying they're, they still don't, it's 2017 and they still don't have clean water. What's it going to take to to fix this? Is it just money? Is it new infrastructure? Is it filters on every tap? What What is what is the the solution here if there is one? Right. So there are there are two ways to answer this. You know, from um, from a scientific standpoint, Flint. After we brought this issue to light, and after Dr. Mona came out with you know the the fact that uh, there was high childhood lead poisoning, uh, the the issue was acknowledged, and within a few weeks, the city switched back to Detroit Water. This was back in October 2015, and since since then, you know, uh, the best scientists from the EPA and the state of Michigan. Uh, you know, are working on 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 fixing the infrastructure. You know, and optimizing the treatment to start the healing of the pipes. So it's been more than a year since the switch back, and uh, we we've gone to Flint uh, after our initial trips. We've made a, a total of four you know comprehensive sampling uh, trips uh, of the same homes we did the first time, and we've seen a consistent decrease in in not just lead but uh, all these other bacteria and iron and all these issues. So from a scientific standpoint, Flint is entering Flint's water is entering a range we would consider normal for other U.S. cities. So the water is not brown anymore. Uh, you know, it's, you barely see bacteria issues. So that's the scientific part. It's probably the the most well main, maintained, well you know researched 
a system in the country right now with the number of eyes on it. However, you now have a, a trust gap. The fact that residents have made it very clear that until you replace the pipes, we would not trust the water again. To be clear, Flint has received more than $650 million in, in aid. Uh, that's, you know, that's for a whole host of things, including the overhaul of, of the water infrastructure and replacing the pipes. But Flint has maybe 15, 20,000 lead pipes. Uh, that Replacing all of that is going to take years, even if it's even if done right. So you have this, this huge trust gap of the citizens who, you know, sure, some of them still have, have issues from the water, you know, maybe rashes they got before or concerns about, you know, some part of the town having brown water. All these issues are relevant, but uh, they would not trust the water. They would not trust the system that that failed them. And so it's this is a big question. You know, how do we go about, you know, I don't think there would be a fix because people who have been, you know, uh, traumatized by this experience probably would never trust tap water again. And, and I wouldn't blame them if they didn't. But we are on on the in the process of because everyone has is being provided water filters and bottled water, which is not ideal, but it's it's an important fix, and we are we are keeping that message and you know until further notice. We still are not saying unfiltered water is safe, but it's a long process. It's uh, you know there are so many moving parts here. The science is just one aspect. Even if I tell you, you know, if, for example, if you lived in Flint and you went through this two years in, uh, you know, I come in and tell you, um, listen, you know, I've been doing a lot of testing across the city and everything looks fine. You would not trust me. Even if I was a trusted messenger, you would not trust it me because of your experience. And so you have all these different moving pieces. For good reason, too. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, the people, the scientists put in place to protect us, people at the state of Michigan and the EPA, you know, their mission is to protect public health. And so when they do the exact opposite, who can you trust? You wouldn't. You can't. You wouldn't trust your children, children with these people. So even if they're doing good work now. So there is that the public trust gap is, is, is a huge challenge. And, uh, you know, no, I don't think anyone really knows like a, a, a fix that would really work. In terms of the scientists at the government agency that that covered up the findings that, mm -hmm. you know, buried the results that you tried to present that didn't conduct the water testing properly, what became of them? Because the I would think accountability is a is, is something that is in play here. It is. It is. And uh it's it's kind of beautiful to contrast. Uh, it's not beautiful. It's horrific to contrast Flint with D.C. And I'll I'll tell you why. So in Flint, uh, all uh, these engineers and scientists uh, within this, the the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality, the Health Department, the people at the water plant, the emergency manager, all of them have been criminally indicted uh, for for their actions. Uh, and we we are you know we are try we'll see in the coming months how that shapes. Uh, the the head of EPA Region Five uh, who silenced uh, their own whistleblower who kind of uncovered this with Leanne, you know she resigned. The head of EP you know the EPA administrator Gina McCarthy went in front of Congress and testified saying EPA had nothing to do with it when their own 
Office of Inspector General investigation shows, they could have acted way early. They waited seven months while people got hurt. Uh, similar, similarly, MDQ, you know, they were giving out these these messages of you know um, lying to both the gov- both uh, the federal EPA uh, and uh, and others within the MDQ. They were really bi- bipartisan in, in in who they lied to. Uh, that was kind of brilliant to witness. So I mean, the accountability, if you will, is I mean, I'm seeing that happening in in Flint. Uh, that you know there there are lawsuits in place. Uh, I think more than 450. Some of them are a class action. Uh, there's I mean there's this good long and hard investigation. You can't so you know ho- hopefully some good will come of this. You compare this with DC in the early 2000s. DC had its own lead crisis for two and a half years where thousands of kids were exposed to high lead, and uh, our EPA and CDC and the water company covered it up. It took uh, you know a lot of years of research to kind of prove that and show that the CDC lied in their scientific report. But, you know, no one has been fired or, you know, taken to court over this. Uh, only out of the thousands of kids poisoned, maybe uh, I think about five actually got their day in court and, you know, they, those cases got settled. So these people actually gave them gold medals for how they handled the DC-led crisis for a great job that they did. So this contrast of government, the bad actors within government and these agencies getting away with things in DC versus somehow the system worked in Flint and the people who are responsible are being held responsible. Now, there's still an enormous amount of work to do and you can uh, our listeners can follow along at flintwaterstudy.org where your team regularly posts updates including technical information on what's happening. I'm really curious about the impact on you personally. You're an immigrant from India that came to do his PhD at Virginia Tech and got, you know, a, you know, innocuously from a pizza party <laughs> thrown into a, an international story. I'm curious how this has impacted, this experience has impacted you and how you think it'll inform your future work. Well, to be honest, there are still parts of it that I have not quite processed you know there are there are i'm i'm sure there are emotions that are you know deeply embedded within me that i have not been able to you know think my way through or feel my way through if you will uh, it was it was i mean the whole experience was immensely i mean frustrating is an understatement uh, because uh, you know all of us i i'm i'm part of this amazing group of young scientists in training you know grad students uh, and even undergrads who are kind of putting their heart and soul into this because they believe in, in the cause. They believe in what's doing what's right. I think personally, it has shaken me to my very core. It, it, it has made me ashamed of people in my own field who can do this. It's made me scared that I, you know, this could very well be me. I don't want to other the people who are responsible because incompetence or arrogance or just not doing your job is is something that we all do now and again so the fact that you know i could very well you know do something wrong and and cause damage is the power uh, is what i'm getting at that engineers and scientists have in their decisions and, and their actions it, i mean it's huge it's it's immense so to be extremely careful extremely vigilant with with your science uh, in in everything you do to be to do your due diligence and work really hard so here's a great example of why you should work hard uh, it's not because you want to get ahead in college or you know get a good job the reason i want to work hard is I want to 
make sure the sciences you know that I have is 100% backing what I'm trying to say and you know it's helping people so personally i think the the i don't think the immigrant experience changes anything because deep down uh, i i believe environmental engineering is an altruistic profession that's why we come to this we we want to do good in society and you know hopefully get paid for it we don't get paid much but i think the idea is we want to do good and the fact that flint afforded us an opportunity and and Mark uh, and everyone in the group, we were able to kind of do this, uh, shows that we want to uphold, you know, the deepest uh, aspirations of our, of our profession, you know, we want to make, I mean, make them a reality. The fact that I'm helping people in America doesn't, I mean, it's, it's still, it's people. So I don't think it matters. I've, uh, you know, I struggle with this question. People, my, my fellow students ask me, do you, are you going to go back to India? What are your plans? Yeah. Everyone, I don't know why the people inundate PhD students with their future plan questions, <laughs> but, uh, we're, we're as confused as anyone else. But, uh, you know, the fact, whether I work in international development in back in India or, uh, you know, somewhere in Africa or, or the U.S. The fact that I'm helping people is, is still sacred. It's, it's what I came to do. And uh, Flint has only kind of bolstered my, my deepest aspirations of upholding, you know, ethical behavior and, and good, you know, using science for the public good in, in everything I do. Thank you for that incredible story, and I wish you well as you continue to improve the quality of water for the Flint residents and people around the world. Sid Roy, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds. Thank you so much for having me. Wow, this is really amazing investigative work. Congratulations, Kishore. (laughs) I, I feel no sense of accomplishment hearing like this much um pain and and uh really there's there's no winners here right there's even for the scientists at Virginia Tech who did amazing work um uncovering this and and not even uncovering this just proving it just providing the evidence to back up what the flint residents knew even them go, coming back to Virginia Tech they look in the mirror and say you know we belong to a system an academic system that doesn't really incentivize us ever doing this like they just got a phone call and picked it up yeah i I, you know it's still i still don't understand how that how this there isn't there just hasn't been one lawmaker who has like come around and just found the money to just fix this problem it's not like it's not fixable the i think there's a cascade of issues here though there has been and sid said this there's 650 million dollars has poured into flint as part of this. Uh, but when you have these pipes, these lead pipes that, you know, are extensive, you can't just magically remove them all. And once we started this corrosion problem, that problem cascades forward. Really, the it's going to take years for them to fix this. And the only, the money can't accelerate the timeline here. And that's the sad part is, in a way, they destroyed the infrastructure of the city by accident and trying to save money. It does make me, you know, somewhat nervous, too. I live in San Francisco and up and down our street, they've been not ours. You know, there's a main thoroughfare and they've been ripping up the sewer lines and putting, you know, new sewer lines because I know the infrastructure is probably 100 years old and it's terrible. Uh, And 
just the other day, I was walking my son to his preschool and I passed a construction site. And of course, we have to stop and look because my son's three and there's a backhoe. And there was one of the city workers using a dousing rod, which, you know, yeah, like it was just shocking to me that that's, you know, we all know dousing rods don't do anything. And yet here's a city worker who's literally ripping up my sewer system using these little copper rods to, I don't know what, find water? I don't know. I'm really struck with one thing, though. Um, Sid mentioned this, that those people that live in Flint, they'll probably never drink tap water again, or they shouldn't be expected to. And a lot of that is on those two scientists, both of whom have been indicted now, who covered up the mistake. And while we have these scientists that played a, an, a role in sort of uncovering this. We also have to acknowledge the malfeasance. And when we are at a crossroads, let's just say, where trust in science has been eroded, how do we deal with this? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, but, uh, you know, I do, every industry has people that make bad decisions and every industry has criminals and frauds. And ultimately, I think you have to weigh the good that the industry provides on the whole. And I still think that balance is in the favor of science. I hope so. Like, there's days when I, when I question that and hearing the story of what those two government scientists did make me question that. But I am uplifted by hearing the Sid's story. Like, they hopped in his professor's wife's van, minivan and like drove up to Flint because they heard the story from Leanne Walters. And I hope there are more Leanne Walters out there that are willing to make calls uh, and that there are scientists on the other end willing to answer. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Michael Galgool, Kyle Raihala, Joel Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, John Kirk, Jordan Millar, Herring Chen, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tomber.com and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with many media outlets. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chien. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy.